0: We keep jumping around in Scriptures, uh, don't we? We're going to do this for uh, this morning. We're going to look at Matthew chapter uh, 5, and we're going to do this for the next two weeks uh, as well, Uh, because what we're doing is we're looking at the four uh, values of our uh, church as a local church, as a congregation, as Covenant Presbyterian Church. And the value that we'll be looking at uh, this morning is uh, the value outreach, And to address this, uh, I am going to uh, exposit a passage from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verses 13 through 16. Before I say anything else about this passage, uh, let me uh, address our little theologians and then lead us in prayer. Uh, Little theologians, very glad uh, that you are here. Uh, I would like for you to draw a picture for me as I am preaching through this passage. I'd like for you to draw a picture of a glove. A glove. You don't have to draw two. You can just draw one if you want. This passage uh, talks to us about how we fit in the world. And, and in fact, as Christians, we actually don't fit in the world. And this passage tells us that. And you'll hear in the conclusion, I'll talk about another kind of fitting, and that is the gospel that we believe. The gospel that we believe, sometimes that doesn't fit us very well. So two kinds of fit. Do we fit in the world? We don't as Christians. And does the gospel fit us Sometimes it fits us, but sometimes it fits us rather uncomfortably. So draw a picture of a glove. And would you please put that glove on a cow? There you have it. Make that glove fit on a cow. Our passage again is Matthew 5, verses 13 uh, through 16. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do uh, thank you that you uh, like to be noticed. You make yourself known. Fathers, we uh, come to you uh, this morning. You are making yourself known. But we have dull ears and hard hearts. We come to you in our uh, sadness and our grief and our depression and our anger. And we come to you uh, even now thinking that we just need to endure, it, endure this service, endure this sermon, and then go about our merry Sunday way. Oh, Father, we thank you that you like so much to be noticed that you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit that dull ears and hard hearts might actually notice. Father, by your Spirit, would you give us understanding of your word and what you are doing in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 13 through 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of our Lord. Well, this is a passage that's very familiar, isn't it? It's in fact so familiar, we perhaps think we know exactly how to understand it and how to apply it in our lives and and I think what we might need is we might need a sermon that's just a little bit disappointing and I am here to help you with that (laughs) there's so much that this passage doesn't actually say we we jump to application so rapidly and we apply it almost without thinking I know what salt does I know what light does and we uh, actually make ourselves feel pretty comfortable about how we are salt and light in the world we Uh, even excuse ourselves. This passage doesn't have every detail that we think is there. And in truth, a lot of this passage we discern uh, differently over different stages of our life, different spheres of influence into which God calls us. Uh, How we apply this passage to be salt and light in the world, we have to admit, if you've been a Christian for uh, more than uh, a few years, you know that you've applied this in different ways over those years and in that regard we want to be thankful that this passage doesn't highlight every uh, detail about what it means to be salt and light what we need is we need a kind of sermon that attempts to say really what's there and then to leave what's not there uh, to be just a little bit mysterious Uh, we want to say what scripture says don't we when we uh, come to God's word we expect our pastors to do that That's my excuse for why this may be a bit of a disappointing sermon. Let me begin with uh, really the setting of the entire Sermon on the Mount. You know this passage. It comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And in this sermon, Jesus seems to be assuming uh, something about the lives of his hearers. And that is that as they uh, hear what he is saying to them, it doesn't neatly plug into the realities of their world. It, in fact, plugs into their world in a pretty jarring way the things that Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. They don't quite fit in the normal behaviors of the world. And if truth be told, with every passing generation, Christians tend to forget who they are, and they tend to be tempted to conform to the pattern of their age. So Christians in 1985 were shaped by the pattern of the 80s like Christians of 1965 were shaped by the pattern of the 60s. And the same is true for us today. We may not want to admit that, but uh, to a varying degree is Christians were shaped by the 2020s. The Christians of every age are tempted to what? Well, tempted to forget who they are and to be conformed to whatever era they live in the sermon on the mount's meant for people like this meant for people like us and we forget who am i as a christian and how I ought, how ought i to stand as a christian in an age like this and jesus preached the sermon on the mount early in his ministry it had to be very striking to everyone even to the disciples Jesus has presented to them the life of following him is a life that actually is completely countercultural. That's what the Sermon on the Mount does. It presents the kind of life that is countercultural to every single age. Well, John Stott, who uh, says uh, a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, he, both he and Martin Lloyd Jones have written separate uh, uh, accounts on just the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I have uh, dug deep into both of these works. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. John Stott says that uh, in Matthew 6, verse 8, we find the key theme to the Sermon on the Mount. And you can just write this down, Matthew 6:8. Just the first few words in the English are what John Stott says is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 6:8 begins like this. Do not be like them. You know, this sermon that Jesus preaches, it's not going to be a good one. It's going to be hard, isn't it? Do not be like them. And in fact, Matthew 6, 8 actually connects to the Old Testament very well. Leviticus 18, verse 3, God says this to a people who are in between Egypt and the promised land. And God says to them, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, isn't that great? When you're out of Egypt, God says, don't do as uh, uh, they do in the land of Egypt where you live. There's a sense in which that's pretty, that's pretty great. All right, don't be like those people. But Leviticus 18 verse 3, it goes on. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. There's a sense in which all of the Christian life in this present age presents us with that difficulty of living in a place uh, to which we need to say, I can't be like you. I can't be like you, not as a Christian. Well, uh, this morning I want us to talk about another value of our church. Uh, last week it was about worship, this week it's outreach. Next week, uh, Pastor Bennett is going to preach on discipleship. And then uh, the fourth is a commun- a covenant life, and that will happen on our Communion Sunday in uh, April. But I want you to know that a value isn't necessarily a destination. A value isn't something that we hope to perfect in the life of our, of our uh, uh, body. Uh, a value isn't a destination, it's a direction, it's an aspiration. Uh, we don't perfect a value, we deliberately pursue it, and we want to call this out as a pursuit of ours as a church. And here's how we articulate this value of outreach. We, we describe it like this. While awaiting the consummation of the reign of Jesus. Awaiting the consummation of the reign of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, we are awaiting the second coming. While we are awaiting the second coming of Jesus, we make Jesus known in word and deed formally and informally in everyday life. We're not just waiting for Jesus to return. We are using this time to make him known to others in word and deed, formally and informally, in everyday life. And we're looking at Matthew 5, 13 through 16, to see that outreach, reaching beyond self, reaching um, into our Christian community, and even reaching into the communities around us, outreach is actually a natural part of what it means to be a Christian. is salt and light, that's who we are by God's power. And as a church body, we want to give deliberate attention outreach so that we don't forget who we are as Christians. John Stott says this about the Sermon on the Mount. He says that this sermon gives us a picture of what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. When we are under the gracious rule of God, members of his kingdom, made members of his kingdom by the atonement of Jesus Christ, we are salt and we are light. This is what it means. What this passage is telling us is this. Let me just uh, offer this sentence before we move on. Uh, I want this passage to teach us uh, and show us that it's easy for us to forget that we're salt and light to each other and to the world. That's it. It's easy for us to forget, isn't it, that we are salt and light to each other and to the world. I want us to do something that maybe uh, you've not heard a preacher do in this passage. I want to treat uh, salt and light uh, uh, mostly uh, together. Uh, Verse 13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. 14, you are the light of the world. And while these sayings, they're not identical, they're really similar. And I want to treat them together it's easy to forget that we are salt and light to each other and to the world. I want to begin by talking about our identity as Christians, and I want to move on to consider our effort as Christian people. But I want to finish on a bit of a low note, and that is our forgetfulness as Christians. Identity, effort, forgetfulness, there's the the uh, three uh, points uh, of this sermon. There's actually going to be quite a few uh, numbers in this sermon. This is going to be a fun one to outline. I mean, if you like to outline sermons. If you don't like to outline sermons, this won't be fun at all. I want want us to begin with our identity. Salt and light in this passage, it's a part of who we are as Christians. That's what Jesus is assuming and this can be positive and negative, can I mean, uh, to be told uh, who you are, what your identity is, that can actually be pretty hard. Uh, I was um, thinking about uh, growing up in a military family. I'm uh, an Air Force brat, and my uh, dad was in the Air Force. Uh, my stepfather was in the Air Force. My stepmother was in the Air Force. I had a grandfather uh, who was in the Army. My brother is in the Air Force. Uh, In many ways, I ought to be in the Air Force myself. I just grew up around military people. grew up on military bases. And I have had a love and hate relationship with that. I've not wanted to be in the military, uh, but it is a part of life that I know well. It's, in a way, a part of my identity, and that can be positive and negative. Happy to be from a military family, don't want myself to be in the military. And really a lot of life is is like that. Uh, Maybe uh, you uh, uh, have grown up in a family business. This business has been in the family for generations and you feel a pressure to take this business while not having a love for uh, the business. Uh, You might uh, think that you uh, were only able to attend a single college because everyone in your family attended that college and your kids better attend that college uh, as well. Uh, There's something positive and negative about being told uh, who you are. But whatever uh, whatever God tells us about who we are as Christians, that we should embrace. As Christians, we're a new creation, we're born again, we're in Christ, adopted children, heirs of eternity. Doesn't all that sound good? What's God doing? He's telling you who you are. And it's important for us to use the word identity when we look at this passage, because Jesus says you are salt, and you are the light of the world. Every Christian is salt, and every Christian is, is light. And we're going to finish this sermon by noticing that that salt may be the kind of salt that has very little flavor, and the light may be the kind of light that is dim and flickers. But here I want us to see that salt and light is not something that we must generate on our own. The salt and light comes from our identity in Jesus Christ. We are salt, and we are light, and this comes from the Holy Spirit by the grace of of God, our Father. Salt and light is just a part of who we are as Christians. We need to acknowledge that. I want to talk about this identity in a few ways. I want to say that our identity um, in, being in salt and light tells us two things about God, two things about ourselves, and one thing about the world. The fact that our identity is salt and light tells us two things about God. Two things about ourselves and one thing about the world. See, I I told you it would be fun to outline, didn't I? This is just the main point. Hang in there. Uh, It tells us uh, that that our identity as salt and light tells us two things about God. First, it tells us that God, he wants to be noticed. God's made us this way. He's made us to be the kind of people that are noticed by the world around us. He made Adam and Eve in his own image to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. God made Adam and Eve to be noticed, to do these things that actually deserves the attention of others. And in fact, even after the fall, um, Adam and Eve are still called God's image bearers, and God has still called them to fill the earth. They are to have children who are to become image bearers and to go out into the world and show the world what right worship looks like. They're made... To be those who teach others how to worship. Just think about the covenant of grace with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the prophets. It's a covenant that's meant to multiply believers. Uh, the covenant of grace is the promise that's made to God's children that they would be a blessing to others, to neighbors. That they would bring fellow image bearers into a right relationship with God through the perfect atonement of Jesus. To be salt and light is to be who we are as Christians according to the purposes of God. God, he wants to be noticed. Just think about that. Salt. How do you know it's salt? It's not just looking at it and seeing its color. Salt can come in different colors. How do you tell if it's salt? You touch it to your tongue. Salt has this noticeable quality such that even if it's mixed with other minerals, salt is meant to be detectable. And the same is true, isn't it, for light. Light cannot be light unless it is detectable. Light is light because it illumines. This identity that we have to be salt and light in Christians, it tells us two things about God. The first thing is that God, he wants to be noticed. And the second thing is this, God wants to use us to get noticed. God wants to use us as his instruments whereby the world notices who he is. That he's made us to be salt and light says that he wants to care for others through his own children. Here's why I say that. You know, God can be his own salt and light. You know that's the case, right? God can be his own salt and light. He can do this immediately by his own strength and power. He could send Jesus in his glorified body multiple times to reveal who he is as God the Father. Jesus showed himself in his glorified body for 40 days. Well, God could send Jesus in that same glorified body multiple times, couldn't he, to make himself known. And in fact, God could speak directly through the Holy Spirit, right to the hearts of others and make himself known that way. But God says that we are to be his instruments, that we would be the ones who would make himself known. Our identity as salt and light tells us two things about God. He wants to be noticed, and he wants to be noticed through the instrumentality of us. Peter says it this way. He says that Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God wants to be noticed by the world, and he wants to use us as his instruments by which he is noticed. It tells us two things about God, and it tells us two things about us. The first thing it tells us this identity as salt and light it tells us that we were never made to be self serving, isolated individuals. We're not saved by grace as Christians so that we might spin our lives in self-service, in isolation, as distinct individuals, libertarian to the core, untouchable by others, unknown by others. To be a Christian is actually to be made for others. We're made for others uh, in our union with Jesus Christ. We're united to him as believers, but we're united by that same energy and in the same instant, we're united to other Christians. We're made for others in the life of the church. We often ignore salt and light when we think about our relationship with brothers and sisters, at least I do, when I think of salt and life. I kind of have that uh, evangelism rolodex turned up in my head. That's all about evangelism. But salt and light is also something that we apply to brothers and sisters in the life of the church. To have an identity uh, to be salt and light is actually a gift to our brothers and sisters. That I can be salt to you when you don't feel very salty. And I can shine a little bit brighter and flicker a bit less when you're dull and flickery it just sounds childish doesn't it but would you hear the beauty in it as well that our identity as salt and light says two things about us the first is that we're made for each other in the church but the second is probably where you jumped to already we're made for others in the world God didn't leave the world without a testimony of his goodness and his grace, nor did God leave the world with only a testimony that is spiritual. God left the world a testimony that is material, that is physical, that is visible, that is real. We go out into the world and we touch others. That's a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, just consider that. Salt is salt because you taste it. Light is light because it illumines. And that's what we get to do in the world. We get to go into communities in which there are no Christians at all, and we get to be God's salt and God's light. We do this in the church, we do this in the world. Let me catch you up with where we are. Our identity as salt and light says two things about God. It says two things about Christians. And it says one thing about the world. The world is without salt and light. God tells us that when things lose their saltiness, when they lose their lightness, they become useless. You see that in the beginning of our passage. John Stott says it this way. He says that the world left to itself decays like rotten fish and rotten meat. There's a rabbinical saying uh, that the world cannot endure without salt. The fact that our identity is to be a people of salt and light is to say that that the world is rotten without us. That's pretty amazing. We don't feel needed in the world, do we? As Christians, needed may be the last thing that we feel. But according to the way God has orchestrated the sustenance of the earth between now and the second coming of Jesus, uh, the sustenance of the earth is found in the church of Jesus Christ. The world actually needs salt and light. And here we are as instruments of that salt and life by the grace of God. It's easy to forget that we're salt and light to each other and to the world. And the fact that salt and light is a part of our identity tells us two things about God, two things about ourselves, and it tells us one thing about the world. The world needs salt and light. That's identity. Let me talk about effort. Effort. Salt and light actually requires effort on our part. You know, this is where I think most preachers start when they're looking at this passage. They dive right in to say what it means to be salt, what it means to be light. Uh, I've deliberately placed that right in the center of the sermon. I don't want to ignore that. I want to uh, try and address it, but I don't want to lead off with it. I want us to hear that salt and light is a part of our Christian identity. But here, let's talk about effort. You know, what does salt do? Two things. Salt makes uh, things better, and salt makes things last. Preserves. If salt was available in the first century primarily for these two reasons, although I read one commentator who actually lists out seven uses for salt. It's too many. We don't have time in this sermon for that. Commentator after commentator comes back to these two uses of salt. The first is that salt adds seasoning to otherwise bland food. Salt adds seasoning, it's detectable, you taste it. It takes a food and makes the food better. Easy to understand, we all get that. But salt also preserves that food. Without refrigeration, salt was used to make meat and fish and butter. And a lot of products actually last. It, it draws out water. It helps to, to prevent uh, uh, bad bacteria. Uh, without microbes, food will last longer. Um, of all of this, I understand virtually nothing. I'm an English major. But salt, it preserves stuff. It's what it does. It adds flavor to food and it preserves food. It is interesting, by the way that salt adds flavor to food and salt preserves food. Do you know how often food shows up in the Bible? Boy, sharing a meal together is so important, but it's biblically important as well. And here, salt, it does something to food to make it taste better and to make make it last longer. R.T. France says simply that salt makes something better And it makes something last. And then he says virtually nothing else. Fat commentary, some 500 pages. And this is all he says. He says, salt makes something better. And it makes something last. And what does it make better? And what does it make last? You see in verse 13. What does it make better? And what does it make last? You are the salt of what? Salt of the earth. How astounding is that? And then look at light real quick, and then we'll go on and talk about uh, the effort that we uh, need to make as Christians. Uh, Light actually makes things visible. Light is there to show us what's there. Everything about the light in this passage has to do with exposure. Verse 15, light gives light to all in the house. Light tells you who and what is in the house. A light not only exposes um, who or what is in the house, but look what light also does in this passage. Light exposes the house itself viewed from the bottom of a hill a house can be lit up telling you that that house is there the house can be seen by outsiders and everyone who's inside that house can see what's really there and the drama of this image of light is heightened by the fact that Christians are called to not only make things visible but to make the entire world visible salt makes the earth salty light makes the world visible Now, this then presents a question for us. How do we make things better, make things last, and make things visible? And I want to talk about three efforts, and here's where you'll be disappointed. Jesus doesn't give us the details of what this looks like. How do I make things better and make things last and make things visible? How do I do that? I think what Jesus is framing for us are three things. He says something about holiness, there's something here about humility, and there's something here about hurt. Remember, we're talking about effort. If in my very identity I'm salt and light, what then is the effort I'm to expend being salt and light? And I want you to walk away with the principles of holiness, humility, and hurt. Salt and light's primarily, I think, and I really think this is, this is true, primarily about Christian holiness. Many commentators say that Jesus doesn't give us a prescription of what the details are here because he wants us to connect this with the value of Christian holiness, which is all over the Sermon on the Mount. Every commentator agrees that Christian holiness is the primary effort to be salt and light. It's the setting of the sermon. This is why Calvin says that in order to be salt and light, we must not swerve from the right path. We must not boast about who we are. Paul says in Colossians 4 that our speech should be what? Seasoned with salt. Not just our behaviors, but the things that we say. Calvin says that our saltiness has meant to purify others and to preserve peace through our behavior before others. He says we're to have a vigor of faith. And you see right there in verse 15 where all of this is drawn from, light is about good works. We're called to be holy. Holy. We're called to live a holy life, and living that holy life is primarily what Jesus means by being salt and light. Do you, you hear how simplistic that is? It almost sounds like it's a cop-out, doesn't it? I want to know really what I should be doing to be salt and light in the world. And Jesus says, Live a holy life. I said, No, I really want to know what I should be doing. Give me details. And Jesus says, Live a holy life. Yes, I got that, but I want to move on to graduate level salt and light. And Jesus says, There's no graduate level. Personal holiness is so important to us as Christians. It ought to stagger in pain, all of us to know that the evangelical church in America, not because we're Americans, but because that's all I really know about, the American evangelical religious experience is an experience in which we follow Jesus, but we tell ourselves it has no impact on my personal holiness before him. That's putting things graphically, isn't it? Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there's something pretty remarkable that happens, though, when Christians go out into the world living a life that is pleasing before Jesus. It may not be the kind of life that gets the type of attention we might like, doesn't bring praise and adulation of the church. It may do a couple of other things. I want to talk about humility and I want to talk about hurt. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says that holiness is important. He says that the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. you believe that's true? That the church, when she is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It's then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. You know this in your own experience, that personal holiness, it might be noticed by others, but at first is noticed in hatred. But over time, sometimes, not always, that holiness serves as an attraction to the gospel. People begin to ask you questions. And that the holiness that was once um, a source of hatred, it turns into mere annoyance and then to something that's just strange and then to something that's just different and then maybe by God's grace it actually proves to be magnetic. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The image of light actually is pretty important with regards to holiness. Over and over again, light is an image in the Bible for God's truth. Our holiness is not a holiness that's simply meant to be copied or emulated by the world. Our holiness is meant to show the truth of who God is, that God loves the world, that God loves me, and that God has uh, commanded me to behave in a certain way, and that I do this not merely because God has commanded me, but I do this as an expression of gratitude for what he's done for me in Christ. Personal holiness is so important to being salt and light. The very critical ingredient. Let me offer two other uh, words. Uh, humility is very important. Uh, none of us are individually salt and light to the whole earth or the whole world. Our ability to make things better, to make things last, and to make things visible, it just it varies, doesn't it? Uh, some of us are called into these settings in which we have a great deal of influence. Maybe we uh, run a business, we have political leadership, uh, and then some of us are not called into areas of influence at all. We feel as if we are um, ourselves simply marginal how in the world can I be salt and light? And I think that it's important for us to know that salt and light always involves humility. Let me say this in a couple of ways. We tend to get lost in naive expectations of grandeur as a church. I don't know if you hear this, but I hear a lot the word uh, redemption used rather loosely. Uh, Christians redeem an entire industry, redeem an entire company, uh, redeem an entire field of specialization. Have you heard phrases like that? As a Christian, I'm called to redeem the world of art. I'm, I'm called to redeem the world of entrepreneurship, the world of business, the world of politics. I wonder if that's more hot-headedness than we care to admit. We tend to get lost in naive expectations of grandeur and when we do that, we forget how humble the church is. The church is actually called to uh, be salt and light, but not in ways that gets us good press all the time or the coolest websites. I think those grand expectations ought to be set aside. And the reason they ought to be set aside is because sometimes we feel as though we have such little influence that I can't be salt and light to anyone. And let me tell you, if you're a good neighbor to uh, the person that lives to your left or to your right, you're being salt and light. You're not called to redeem your entire neighborhood so that everyone in your neighborhood becomes a Christian, and they're doing the same thing to the neighborhood next and the neighborhood next to that be a good neighbor, love your neighbor, care for your neighbor. I think that as we get lost in naive expectations of grandeur, we forget that all of us as Christians, by our very identity, all of us can be salt and light. Humility is just as important as holiness. And then let me call out what you're probably already expecting. There is hurt in being salt and light. Salt and light comes at a cost. We can't forget that the uh, Sermon on the Mount begins with a great many statements about the persecution that Christians will endure. Jesus says confidently they will endure persecutions. That when we live as Christians, being salt and light, wherever God calls us, it may lead directly and speedily to our own persecution. Holiness, humility, and hurt. You know, Martin Luther uh, also uh, wrote a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, and Martin Luther did something that I think is real healthy. Uh, He tried not to say too much about other people's vocations, but he did talk about his own vocation as a preacher. Um, And what he was noticing in the church of his time uh, was that oftentimes ministers, they withdraw uh, to such a degree that they are useless to the world. Uh, He says, holy fathers, bishops, monks, and hermits uh, withdraw from the company of the world, And Luther didn't want to be that kind of preacher who withdrew, but he understood why they did it. When a preacher withdraws from the world, it's oftentimes just to keep themselves safe. It looks like persecution is mounting, and they don't want to be hurt. And I don't want to be that kind of preacher, and I know that I err on that side of things, just given uh, what's happened uh, in our country with regards to sexual identity alone, that's just, that's just one topic. We could talk about others. I believe that the American pastor who, uh, uh, who uh, believes in the gospel has been called more and more to not withdraw from the world, but to speak to the world. To proclaim God's word more clearly than ever so that there wouldn't be any doubt that the identity politics that we're currently living in are identity politics that if we participate in them, we're being displeasing to our Lord and Savior. It's almost as if this has been thrust upon uh, the pastor today, and I'm glad it has been. Because Luther said, uh, Martin Luther said that pastors need to feel this hurt. They need to feel this persecution, to not withdraw into safety. And it's with that realization for myself that I want to encourage you as well. As we feel more and more marginalized as Christians, being salt and light, it's part of personal holiness and, it's part, and it requires humility. But you might get hurt as well. Being salt and light might mean you don't get that promotion It might mean you don't make as much money as the person whose office is next to yours and the person who has fewer certifications than you do. It might mean that you lose your job. It might mean that you lose an opportunity to work in an industry that you love. Personal holiness can do that. Holiness, humility, and hurt. And I want to finish... With this, and I need to tell you what I think about this passage. What we've, what we've looked at so far is that uh, to be salt and light is our uh, identity. To be salt and light requires uh, effort, uh, holiness, humility, and hurt. That salt and light can be forgotten in our lives. When you look at this passage, uh, you see that Jesus uh, considers the reality that we would probably choose to ignore. He says that salt can lose its taste and become useless, and when it does so, it's trampled under people's feet. And he says that light can be put under a basket, and when that happens, light's useless. Who do you think Jesus is speaking to? Let me just think about that. Who do you think Jesus is speaking to? And some say that Jesus is speaking to non-believers, that's why they're not salt, and that's why they're not light. I'm just not convinced of that. I believe Jesus here has a message for us as disciples, as followers, and he's calling out a reality that to be salt and light is something that we can forget or dare I say neglect. This is one of the reasons why I think it's important as a church, we call this out as a value. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus seems to be saying that Christians will sometimes find it easy to live without being salt and light. He's addressing forgetful, negligent Christians. This is us, isn't it? One of the reasons why it's easy for us to forget to be salt and light is because it's so easy for us to just focus on ourselves. I think about uh, the role that Satan plays in the rise of um, uh, focus on identity in the world in which we live. That colors us as Christians. We ourselves begin to think that my own personal identity is everything. The world elevates a self-identity, and we tend to elevate identity in our own lives. And when we do that, we see self as life for self, and that's all. And it's important to remember not who we think we are, but who God says we are. It's so easy, isn't it, to focus on just ourselves. And when we do that, we tell ourselves, I'm going to work on my own life as a Christian, and then I'll be working uh, for others. It's so easy to focus on ourselves. I had the little theologians at the beginning of the sermon draw a glove being forced on a cow because a glove doesn't fit a cow, but I want to share with you something in closing that was shared with me a long time ago by a pastor whom I value. You can't put a glove on a cow, right, little theologians? You still with me? Long sermon, little theologians, you can't put a glove on a cow, it doesn't quite fit. But sometimes what God calls us to be as Christians, that's kind of hard to fit as well. And this pastor said to me, he says that the gospel is like ill-fitting clothing. You can stretch it around your body like a wetsuit, but it just pinches and it rubs. It just doesn't fit perfectly, does it? This gospel is beautiful. I love the gospel. I love being a part of the family of God through the power of the gospel, but the gospel doesn't always fit. The gospel reminds me time and time again that I'm a sinner. The gospel reminds me that uh, a humble person, a perfect person's blood, had to be poured out for my salvation, and if that horrible thing didn't happen, there'd be no love for me in the Father. The gospel reminds me that everything that I have, I have by the power of someone else, that nothing I bring to the table matters at all. All of who I am comes from someone else. Let me just think about this. This is what the gospel tells us. I am a sinner. My Jesus' blood had to be poured out for my relationship with God. And everything that I have, I have by grace. There's something about the gospel that just doesn't quite fit right. It pinches and it pulls and it tugs. And as a church called Covenant Presbyterian Church, I don't want us ever to forget that. And so we need to have a culture of reminding one another that in that very gospel that pinches and that rubs, in that very gospel, we are called to serve and care for others. The very gospel that we love is the very gospel that pinches, and it tells us that we are to be salt and light to the world, that our identity is not an identity that's just about me, and that the effort that I expend looks very small, but is important. And the gospel will tell me that I can be so forgetful about this. We just looked at Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel said that Jesus did not uh, come to be served, but to serve. You have life because he served you. And this value of outreach says to us, you who have been served now, serve others. And it pinches and it rubs, but we don't want to forget. Well, would you join with me uh, in prayer together? Our Father, we ask that you would give to us the realization that we're called to serve others. We pray, Father, that you would remind us that this is our identity to be salt and light. Would you remind us, Heavenly Father, that personal holiness is required of us and may lead to our hurt. And Holy Father, would you forgive us for our forgetfulness and help us to serve as salt and light more and more as a church body. In Jesus' name, amen.